Good evening, everyone. Did we have a good day today? Snaps if you did. All right, all right. Listen, real quick, real quick, I want to make sure we're all on the same page from last night before we move on tonight. Last night, we heard about the story of the, the Good Samaritan. And one brief way for you to understand the main idea that we talked about last night is by thinking about that story as a story of bad news and a story of good news. Now, last night, what we saw was when Jesus described the demands of neighbor love, we all recognized, along with the lawyer in the story, that none of us love our neighbors in a way that could lead us to inherit eternal life. How many people in here can love their neighbors so perfectly and so well that they can inherit eternal life? How many? Zero. Nobody in here. That's the bad news. None of us loves our neighbors well enough to inherit eternal life. But the good news of the passage is that God in Jesus Christ is a neighbor-loving God. And, and what Jesus has done is he has found us, remember, on the side of the road, half dead, not able to love God and not able to love our neighbors well enough to inherit eternal life. But what he does, Jesus, he has compassion on us in our brokenness, in our sin, in our failure. And he has loved us back to, his, to, back to our senses. And once you know that you are the neighbor who has been loved by Jesus, then you have the power by God's grace to love your neighbors. So, recap. Can you love your neighbors well enough to inherit eternal life? Everyone says, no. no. But the good news is that Jesus loves half-dead people. He is a neighbor-loving God. And as a result of his love for us, what are we now able to do? Love our neighbor. Are we all on the same page? We good? All right. I just want to make sure that was clear. So, Tonight, we are going to take the next step in our discussion of peace with God or reconciliation. And we come to the Gospel of Matthew tonight to talk about forgiveness and reconciliation or relationships and reconciliation. So we're going to read tonight from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. So if you would turn there with me. Sword drill. Say amen when you get there. All right, y'all fast. All right. R-Y-M. I knew y'all were getting these students in the scriptures. All right. Beginning with verse 21. This is God's word. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, 
he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. If you would please join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that now you would bless the preaching and the hearing of your word. We pray that Jesus would shine through in all of his grace and all of his goodness and all of his beauty and that your spirit would be active, bringing us to understand what it means to know you as our father. And we pray that tonight we would trust you more and that we would turn from our sin and unbelief and unforgiveness and would live as your people in the world. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. When I went off to college, I had every intention on having the best time that I could possibly have. And when I got to the campus at New York University, what, what I did was nothing short of madness. I, I, I wanted to have the best time, and, and I wanted to get the best meal plan, and I wanted to live in the best dorms. While I was at college, I wanted to have myself a good time. But what I didn't realize was that as I was having myself a good time, every day that I was on that campus, I was racking up more and more student debt. But it had never really occurred to me that this is what was happening every day. And so after my four years at New York University, I decided that I loved school so much that I decided to do another six years of seminary. And I remember that during my first semester of seminary, I got this letter in the mail from Citibank. And I'd never received any mail from Citibank. And so I opened up the letter and I was curious about what this would mean. And the letter said something to this effect. Dear Russell, congratulations on completing your undergraduate degree. It is now time to start paying your student bill. And on that piece of paper, it showed me my debt that I owed to Citibank for all of my years of fun, for all of my fancy meal plans and my nice dormitories. And they... They put the number as a total, and then they broke it out into monthly payments. And it didn't matter how you cut that pie. When I looked at how much I owed to Citibank for my years in college, I, 
I sort of, like, the, the, the paper slipped out of my hands, and it was like it was in slow motion. And it just went back and forth. And I thought I heard a violin playing a sad song. And I was absolutely shocked at how much I owed. And here's the crazy thing. At the moment that I was reading this note, my wages were at the poverty line. I was working a job. I wasn't even making enough to, to qualify above the poverty line. And not only that, I was in school again going into deeper debt as I was reading about the debt that I had already accumulated four years ago. And after I kind of woke up from the shock, I picked up that letter again and I continued reading and a ray of hope broke through on me because I found this line in the letter. You may qualify for a debt forgiveness program backed by the government. And once I read the words debt forgiveness, all of a sudden a new kind of hope entered into my life. I started imagining the kind of freedom that I would have if I were free from this debt. I started imagining the kind of bandwidth that I would have if I were free from this debt. Now, you students here are, are not yet under the weight of college school debt. You may not have any, any college debt. You probably don't have any credit card debt. It's very unlikely that you have any mortgage debt. But every person in this room today has accumulated sin debt. Every one of us owes a debt to God for all of the sins that we have committed throughout our lives. All of us have done things and said things and thought things that show that we don't value God above those things. We have gone deeper and deeper into debt to the Lord. And here's the thing. We have gotten the Lord's letter that tells us just how deeply we have gone into debt. And, and here's the thing. As you hear this telling of our sins and our failures and our idolatries coming from the scriptures, as you hear it, at that very moment, you are living at a point of spiritual bankruptcy. You, you, you're, you're in spiritual poverty. You, you could not hope to, to be able to pay it back. And not only this, at the very moment that you hear from God's word that you owe a debt to God, in that very moment, you are racking up more debt. There's hardly a moment through our lives that we're not sinning and acquiring more debt before the Lord. But here's the deal. That's not the only thing that's in this book, this letter from the Lord. Because also in this letter, we learn of a debt forgiveness program that has been instituted in God's kingdom. A program through which God is able and willing to forgive great sin debts of great sinners through his great love. And tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this classic passage on forgiveness. And, and hopefully, you're going to experience a ray of hope tonight as you hear about the Lord's debt forgiveness program. And by God's grace, you're going to see how it is that the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ can transform you and make you the kind of person 
who extends that very same kind of forgiveness to the people around you. And so we're going to get into our passage through two points tonight. We're going to see the principle of forgiveness, and we're going to see the practice of forgiveness. So let's begin with the principle of forgiveness. And when we get into our passage for tonight, we're beginning with verse 21. But right before this, there is a section in Matthew 18 about what followers of Jesus are supposed to do when someone sins against them. And when someone sins against us, Matthew 18 tells us that we're supposed to go to them and we're supposed to work it out with them. And you can see how it is that this naturally prompts a question from Peter. Because after this talk of people sinning against us and, 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 and working it out with brothers and sisters in the faith, an obvious question rises for Peter. He says, so Jesus, let me get this straight. So when someone sins against me and we work it out, how many times should I go on forgiving someone when they sin against me? And then Peter offers a number that he thinks is pretty generous. Should I forgive them up to seven times? And it's like Peter brushes his shoulder off. He thinks seven's a lot. Because at the time, the teachers of the day, they taught that you should forgive someone up to three times. And so what Peter does is he says, well, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a generous guy. You know, Jesus, what do you think about forgiving someone seven times? And Jesus hears this, this question from Peter and he says, I don't tell you seven, but 77. And obviously he's not talking about a literal 77 times. He's, he's saying, you just have to go keep on forgiving. You must forgive to no end. And then he begins to tell them a story. He jumps into a story to illustrate the principle of forgiveness for those who follow Jesus. And there's an emphasis in this story. You have to appreciate it. There's an emphasis in this story on the extravagant nature of forgiveness that follows in this story. And it places, here's the key thing you need to hear tonight. This passage places the disciples' forgiveness of others squarely upon the foundation of God's forgiveness of the disciple. We don't forgive just because we're decent people. We don't forgive because we just need to be reasonable people. The difference when it comes to Christians is that we are to forgive the people around us based upon the firm foundation that God has forgiven us. That's why if anyone were to ask you why you should go on forgiving, no matter how ugly the sin is, no matter how many times you've been sinned against, the answer for why you should forgive comes in the fact, the basis that you have been forgiven by God if you have trusted in Jesus. And in verses 24 through 25, Jesus is telling the story. Of a, of a, like, look at the passage. Look at the passage. There was, a, there was a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 was the biggest word that you could make in the Greek language. And a talent was the biggest unit of money 
that existed at the time. In other words, the way you should hear this story, the way that the original hearers would have heard this story, is something like this. When the king was settling accounts with his servants, one servant owed his king a bajillion dollars. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. This number, 10,000 talents, it's more money than was in circulation in, in, the, in that place at the time. There wasn't, that money in, there wasn't that much money in the treasury at the time. In other words, it was an immeasurable debt. It could not be calculated. And all of the hearers would have immediately heard this is an immeasurable debt that is owed. This man doesn't have the resources to pay the king back. He has no hope of paying the king back. And he begs for time. And he promises, this is the funny thing, he promises to pay everything back. And it's an impossibility. And the king essentially says, you can't pay this back, but I will cancel the debt. Now, think about it. If someone owes you money, let's say you, let's say you loan me $10. And I come to you and I say, it's time to pay me my $10. And you say, I don't have it. Just give me some time. And I know you're not going to give me my $10 back. And I say, you know what? Don't worry about it. The debt is cleared. Someone has to pay. And who is the someone who has to pay, essentially? Me. I have to absorb the loss. And so in this story is a servant who owes an unimaginable amount of money, and the king forgives it. And essentially what the story is showing us is that the king himself absorbs the debt. He takes the hit himself. And this man... As much as he promises to repay, he simply could not repay. And every listener who was there listening to Jesus would have known that this debt could not be repaid. No matter how much he talked about repaying the king, no matter what kind of promises he made to the king, this man could not repay this debt in 10,000 lifetimes. He could not repay this debt. It was incalculable. And immediately we see the point that Jesus is making to his disciples. This is what God is like toward us. We can never begin to repay what we owe. Be patient with me and I will pay back everything is as pitifully untrue for us as it was for this servant who owed this king. None of our promises of trying harder. None of our commitments of going to church a little more. None of our commitments of showing up at Bible study and, and doing good deeds for others around us will be able to erase the debt that we have. None of it. But you know what God says to his people? I will take the loss. I will take the loss. That's the good news of the gospel, that King Jesus took the loss for the debts that you owed to God. He absorbed it himself. He paid it for you. He paid the debt. The principle of forgiveness begins with God's debt forgiveness program, y'all. And there's no fine print. There are no limits. And the only, the only qualification 
that you, that you need for qualifying for the, the, the king's debt forgiveness program is your confession that you need mercy. That's all you need. All you need is an acknowledgement of your need. And the king forgives and takes the loss. There's an old school cat, church father named Augustine. And this is what he said about forgiveness. He says this. He says, he accepted what was not his due and he gave us what was not ours. He says to his congregation, I want you to be forgiving for I've caught you begging for pardon. Forgive. Don't recoil because you will be the very person in need of seeking forgiveness before the sun goes down on you today. He said, listen to that. Augustine says, I want you to forgive because I've seen you begging for pardon. I want you to extend the very forgiveness that you always acknowledge that you need, that you regularly are begging for. He says, you're going to be the very person in need of forgiveness before the sun goes down on you today. So why don't you become a forgiving person? Why don't you embrace the call to forgive? I love that, that word from this ancient church father. But look at verses 28 through 25. Look at verses 28 through 25. This same man, freshly released from his debt, does the unthinkable. Now, now look at this. Look at this. The ink hadn't even dried on the debt cancellation paperwork when he finds a fellow servant who owes him, and he chokes him, and he jails him. Now, do you see the mirror effect that Jesus is holding up? He's showing a king releasing this unimaginable debt for this servant. And then this servant, who has someone in in debt to him, who is in a prime situation to show that same kind of forgiveness, that same kind of debt cancellation of someone who owes him far less. And instead of mirroring the kindness and generosity that he has received, he completely betrays it. Do you see this? And listen, what is your reaction as a hearer of this story to the man who would not Forgive the debt of his fellow servant. What's your, what's your response? Anger, right? You're indignant. You're like, no. How could he do that? That's not right. You don't even have to be a Christian in order to see that that's not right. Right? You, you look at this and you get indignant. It's outrageous that the servant should behave like this. But notice the reason it seems so outrageous is because it follows on an extraordinary act of generosity by the king to the servant. Without this debt cancellation, it would have been reasonable for this guy to go and expect this dude to pay him back his money. But following such an extraordinary act of generosity, it makes zero sense for this servant to treat his fellow servant in this way. The king, in other words... The king has absolutely transformed this servant's world. Everything in his world is now different because the king canceled his debt. But he goes on and he lives as if this debt cancellation of an unimaginable amount never actually happened. It does not change the way he treats his fellow servant who is in need of grace and mercy. 
and he's willing to send his fellow servant to a fate that he himself escaped by mercy. Do you see this in the text? The kingdom principle here, the lesson here, is that in Christ, God has torn up the pages of our debts. And our failure to forgive wrongs that are done against us is outrageous. Following this extraordinary act of generosity from the Lord. It's to live as if the debt that we owed to God was never canceled. And the principle that Jesus is driving here is that those who follow Jesus, those who know his forgiving love, are to become a people that forgives freely to an unimaginable extent even. Forgiveness is not excusing the sin. It's resisting the desire to hold wrong against someone else. He forgives us so that forgiveness should become a regular practice in our lives, which brings us to our second point, the kingdom practice of forgiveness. Now, Jesus is teaching us something in this parable. He's challenging his disciples for a very important reason. And this is why. You and I must actually practice forgiveness in order to grow in it. You become good at something based upon your practice. And one of the reasons why we're so good at not forgiving people is because we practice not forgiving people. And forgiveness is, is a muscle that we need to work out, that we need to exercise in order to grow in it. And here's the deal. Everybody likes forgiveness until they have something to forgive, right? Everyone likes forgiveness when you're on the receiving end. But very few people like forgiveness when they're the ones called to extend it. And that's the challenge for us. And something that's really important in this passage, verse 31. How did this wicked servant get busted? Look at verse 31. His fellow servant saw. And the, and the, the emphasis that comes through that little line in the story is, is Jesus is telling us, that people are watching us and we are to be a different kind of people in the world. And one of the ways that we bear witness to the world about what God is like and who God is, is by the way that we forgive people. The way that we forgive one another, especially in the family of faith. Think about it. God, in John 17, Jesus tells us that he has hitched his reputation to the way in which we live together in love. He's hitched his reputation to the way in which we treat one another. People will know what, what God is like and who I am. People will know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And the, and the question that emerges from this text, one of the questions is this. What would others conclude about God's way with people from your way with people? If Christians are supposed to be one of the best windows that people get on who God is and what God is like, then what would people assume that God is like with people based upon the way that you are with people? Is God mad all the time and annoyed and <sighs> irritated with people? Is he quick to light people up or give them a hard time when they drop the ball, when they fail? 
when they sin. What is God like? Most of our friends in school, most of our friends on our teams, people in the world are watching Christians, and whether they realize it or not, they are answering that question based upon what they perceive in us, for good and for bad. And it's a challenge to us. But how do you actually practice this? So we got the kingdom principle, right? We forgive because we've been forgiven. There is always this this gospel paradigm for the Christian. That what you have experienced from God in the gospel is supposed to be reflected through your life back to the world and back to the other people in your life. Why do you show grace to other people? Because you have received. Why do you show mercy to people? Because you have received. Why do you show patience with other people? Because you have received. Yeah. Do you see how it works? God wants to shape your life with these realities of of what he's done through Jesus Christ. And so what we get from this text is we are to forgive others Because we have been forgiven. Yeah. You see this? So now the question is, how do you practice this? I'm going to give you a few things that I want you to think about when it comes to practicing forgiveness. The first thing you have to do is you have to stop nursing your hurts, injuries, and grudges. Stop nursing them. Now, if any of you have been around a mother with a little baby... Nursing is when the mom feeds the baby. And what's the idea with nursing? That that little baby, through nursing, will grow up one day and eat barbecue and steak, right? Okay, so here's what happens when you nurse your injuries and your grudges. Pretty soon, your grudges and your your injuries and your frustrations with other people, they stop nursing, and now they're full grown, and they're eating steak and barbecue. If you keep on telling yourself, I can't believe they did that to me. You know what? That's just like them because they're always like that. And, you're not, and then you just right, rehearse it in your mind why, they're, why you're frustrated with them or, 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 or why you should give them revenge. That thing grows, but you have to cut it off. You have to stop feeding it. Stop nursing your grudges and your hurts. The next thing we have to do is stop confusing strength with weakness and weakness with strength. Stop confusing Weakness with strength and strength with weakness. And this is what I mean by that. We tend to think in, in, in our current cultures, in American culture, there's this idea that the people that we are to really admire are the people that put others in their place. They don't let anyone boss them around. They don't let anyone take advantage of them. And so forgiveness can come across like a weakness. But in God's kingdom, forgiveness is not a weakness. It's a strength. It's a virtue. Patience with others, grace toward others is not a weakness. It's a virtue. So don't confuse those two. We have to practice a painful forgiveness. Sometimes it hurts to forgive people because we would rather bless them. We'd rather give them what they deserve. But remember, the good news of God's grace is you don't get what you deserve from God. You get what you don't deserve, which is his kindness and his forgiveness and his love. The next thing, how can you grow in forgiveness? This is the next thing. 
Don't sleep on this one. This one's important. You need to start naming the tenderness of God toward you. Because you know what it's like to be in a position where God has you busted, dead to rights. And yet, he releases your debt. So start naming God's many mercies toward you. Sometimes that's a really helpful thing to do with a journal. Because guess what? You can't even keep all of his goodness to you present of mind by just trying to think about it. But if you were to write a list of all the mercies of God toward you, all of the ways that he has been kind to you, that he has demonstrated his patience with you, that he has loved you, the longer a list you can draw up, the more and more bandwidth you will have to be gracious toward other people, to forgive other people. Next, and this is another important way, not only naming the many mercies of God, the next thing you need to do is practice confessing your own sins. Because every sin that you confess before God is a sin that is pardoned. Isn't that beautiful? So the more you confess your sin, the more and more you're actually making a list of his many mercies toward you. And here's the deal. You will never be long on forgiveness if you are short on confession. And that's why in our churches every Sunday we confess our sins. It's not just us, you know, being a downer on Sunday. you got to make me confess my sins, man. I'm trying to get a pick-me-up on Sunday. If you understand what confession is, it's one of the greatest pick-me-ups ever, really and truly. Where else could you come and be absolutely honest about how ruined and broken you are and at the end of that hear someone say, pardoned, beloved, forgiven, child, mine, only in the gospel, only in God's church. And that's the beauty of confession. And the more practice you are at confessing your sins, the more in touch you are with how great your need is for the mercy and pardon of God, well, then the freer your forgiveness becomes. You become more and more free to forgive others. The last thing I will say is this. There are some, there are some things in this world, some sins that are so grave, so, so heavy. Some of you will have people sin against you in such a horrendous way. There are people around the world who have been sinned against so deeply and the felt need for vengeance is so strong. The last thing I'll say is this. You have to leave room for God's wrath. And here's what I mean by that. In the New Testament, one of the, the apostles says this to a community that is suffering injustice from the Roman Empire. He says... Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I will repay. There are some things that can't be repaired on this side of eternity. But God will make it right. God will make it right. The goal, friends, and this is my final thing. Remember, forgiveness is actually not the goal. Restored relationship is the goal. And forgiveness is one of the most important means to restored relationships, to reconciliation. 
Forgiveness is one of the most important ways that we bring peace with God, flourishing with one another into our relationships. It's one of the ways that we bring the peace that we have with God into our relationships with one another. Forgiveness. The goal is restored relationships. Forgive as you have been forgiven. As Just think on how happily you have been forgiven by God the Father in Jesus Christ. And pray for grace to forgive with that same kind of expansive heart. Ask God to help your unbelief and to stretch your faith. And when you pray for, for God to use you to show grace to other people, remember that forgiveness is one of the most important ways that he uses his people to show the world what he is like. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. We ask that you would bless us to live according to the truth of your word, according to the grace of the gospel, and that you would forgive us for the ways that we have been slow to forgive others. Grow us and help us to practice this most important virtue of the faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.